Hello and welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're at home, on your way to work, or at the gym, we hope you enjoy this episode. And a special welcome to our Crux Club Early Access members. You can learn more about that at crux-club.com. Enjoy the podcast. Brandon Monroe, how are you, sir? Um, well, thanks, Matt. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. Friday night. What a week. What a week. Yeah, it's uh, another pretty interesting week. Yeah. Action packed, you might say. Action Seen the packed. spot price go through $34. Yeah. So really knocking on the door now of 35 And you now that's less than a couple of weeks from when it pierced 30 so we've very much seen the psychological barrier at play um, for a whole, roast, a whole range of reasons, of course, to do with COVID-19 disruption. But you know, some big statements coming out of the two main players in the sector as well this week. That's right. We had um, Cameco. We're actually just hot off the off the call with uh, Cameco's quarterly with with Tim and Grant. Uh, the other one is obviously Kaz Prom with uh, Mr. Brimatov as well, which we'll talk about. So why don't we dive into what we heard on the Cameco call? Because I thought there were a few interesting things. There's the one which everyone wanted to hear about. What was their view on the US government's Department of Energy uh, announcement with the new nuclear fuel working group this week? And it was quite tame, really. They just liked the tone. Like the tone, like the way that it's talking about the bigger picture, bit lacking of details as as we probably agree and um, you know I think Tim Gitzel said it's an honest look at where the US has fallen away so uh, nothing that we don't really know uh, I think Cameco have always been quite well hedged in this whole affair um, they've got US assets they've got assets that could come back into production quite soon and he did make the point that they're, prob- they're probably about a billion dollars down in terms of total investment into the US. So he seemed very comfortable about where it all uh, has ended up. And, and there was certainly the, uh, the recognition on his part that he's happy to see the pound sequestered. He didn't want to see uh, mu- uh, any form of um, preferential market availability to those players sitting ahead of MacArthur River is what I got out of that. No, I thought, I thought the point you just made, I think it was uh, the thing that stood out for me most, actually. The other was a phrase which was used shortly afterwards, which was um, talking about uncommitted production. It kind of struck me that there might be a, if not an, uh, or a couple of nervous individuals out there when that phrase was used, what's your take? Yeah, my ears pricked up with that phrase as well. So uh, for anyone who wasn't on the call, uh, they were talking about how the spot market works and the fact that, as we probably well know by now, it's not really an instant delivery spot market. And in fact, uh, trades can go through the spot market where they're sold for forward delivery as far out as 12 months. So the, the comment was made about a disproportionate effect of these COVID-19 disruptions on those players in the spot market uh, who have been selling uh, uncommitted pounds. So in other words, selling the pounds now and expecting to pull them out of a mine in two, three, maybe six months, maybe even nine months. So 
though, I did sort of wonder if that's maybe a little bit of a hint to everyone out there that there could be players who are likely to get caught short. And bearing in mind that the, particularly if we see the Kazakh disruption wear on for a bit longer, because there's a whole range of partners who are participating with Kazatomprom in that Kazakh production, very cheap production, as we know, it represents almost the entire bottom quartile of the cost curve. And it's players who obtain that sort of production who are in a position to be effectively selling forward into the spot market for delivery in three, six, nine months. So that's a very interesting dynamic that I think we'll need to watch. And it's another example of one of the virtuous cycles, upward cycles that we could see, particularly if Kazakh production stays off any longer than the three months that they've highlighted so far. I think it's, it's never a good practice in any vertical, not just uranium, anywhere, to you know, claim revenue forward. You're going to get into difficulty in times of uncertainty. And I think one of the others are resigning. I mean, this is only the second call I've listened to with Kamiko, but I'm, getting, I'm building a picture of a very conservative forward planning operation here. Um, certainly the language you heard with Grant when he was talking specifically around some of the numbers. So I guess that's that's comforting. And in times like this, when they're planned, not necessarily for COVID, but a major disruption and you've got access to $2.2 billion, you can feel a little bit more comfortable. Well, that's true. And, and I would describe the tone as very confident, but also very poised. Mm. Uh, they really didn't come across as being rattled at all as a result of having their both of their two um, one assets, uh, controlling joint venture in Canada, but also a minority joint venture in Kazakhstan. They're both going down. And the message that they were keen that everyone got was, hey, we've been planning for this for, since 2016. We've got this one and we can't wait. I th- I- well, I agree with you on that one. If, if, if anything, I think they're almost enjoying it in a way. Because if, if I remember, let's, let's talk about Port Hope. When Port, people talked about Port Hope, it was a phrase used was that they, they, they took it down under their own terms and they'll, they'll put it back up under their own terms, which basically means that if they've shut it down for the right reasons, but they will bring it back up for different reasons, but different reasons which they control. Yeah, and look, um, Port Hope, um, for everybody, that's the conversion facility uh, that they have in Canada. And what I got out of that is a very different tone when talking about Port Hope. And the implication was, and this came out in the original press release as well, the implication was, we want to take this down when it suits us. These big industrial facilities, you don't want to be told that by the authorities that you've got three days to take this down. Um, they talked about the fact that they've accelerated some of their summer maintenance into this period. And Grant Isaac confirmed, as much as he's not giving guidance, he still confirmed that effectively there's no impact on that uh, fuel part of their business. So clearly they're thinking that Port Hope will come back up at the end of the four weeks and not expecting that to go into prolonged care and maintenance. So a very confident tone about that, which quite uh, different and in a real contrast to the way that clearly they're thinking about Cigar Lake. 
I mean, no impact. That's a, that's a heck of a statement to the market. I mean, that's the point of these calls is to make, make the shareholders feel comfortable, but you've also got to deliver on those things. So, and, and part of the reason for that, um, I, I think, again, for people who weren't on the calls, there was planned uh, downtime in the summer, and they're just saying, well, we've effectively just brought that forward. So that, that, I think, makes sense to me. Um, mm-hmm. And I hope, you know, and let, let, let's, let's see if they can, let, they can deliver that. Um, let's talk about Cigar Lake, because, again, the, the language around that one was equally confident. Yeah, so lots of references, not only to the, the broader ESG decision-making around Cigar Lake, but protection of employees, families, community. That came through probably three times on the call, and they will only turn Cigar Lake back on <clears throat> when they're confident that they can continue to operate in that way. And a lot of backfilling in terms of we've got the strategy that can cope with this staying off for a prolonged period of time. So I didn't see any messaging or any signposting of Cigar Lake coming on at any, according to any particular timetable. They've basically said, look, this will last as long as it lasts, but we're well prepared. We've got the balance sheet, as you say, to write it and um, pointed out that uh, they've got some very effective mitigations for a scenario where they have to be paying over the odds in the spot price uh, to fuel deliveries. And so that's what I got out of Cigar Lake and an interesting, almost a throwaway comment towards the end. They highlighted a community from which they do draw employees and contractors, uh, apparently, that um, in the last couple of days has just had a spike of 50 COVID cases. So that isn't going to augur well for Cigar Lake coming on in the near term, I wouldn't have thought. That is exactly the sort of scenario that they're very worried about. And whilst there's absolutely no implication that there was any connection between Cameco's activities and that outbreak, that is nonetheless the type of thing that uh, they're very concerned about. And what about the impact on the lack of production um, with regards to delivering on the contracts, the existing contracts that they have? Yeah, it was an interesting one because there's been a lot of speculation uh, amongst analysts and even retail investors that they'll seek to push their delivery profile around. They might call for force majeure, et cetera. What came through really clearly was the only possible risk to deliveries might be on the timing. And then in question time, Grant Isaac came back and specified that, hey, they it won't be Cameco asking for delivery times to be moved around. Maybe some of their customers will, but it seems that they're getting a very strong sense from their customers that they need these pounds and they want these pounds. And Cameco is ready to deliver on those according to the original timeframes. So no indication whatsoever that they'll be wriggling out. They talked a little bit about some of the mitigation measures that they might have if they really get backed into a corner on spot price and the capacity to borrow off customers um, who've got storage with them. Um, that's probably the most significant of that, but also talking about their own inventory which suggested to me that perhaps they're thinking, well, let's just leave that inventory as the final mitigation in case we really see a rocketing spot price and, and we don't want to chase it through, you know, X plus Y. That's when the inventory will come into play. So a, a bit of strategy here. Well, I thought it was a bit of strategy from there. So Grant, again, was talking about 
it was their decision. I think this control component came through a lot throughout the language of the whole call. But it was their decision to shut down at MacArthur Lake. It was their decision to shut down Cigar Lake um, and draw from inventory in the marketplace. It's almost like they wanted Mm -hmm. to suck out these floating inventories from the market to help the market drive the price. Mm-hmm. This, is, this was their contribution yep. towards driving price because they say there's a lot of, sort of uh, unknown and unwanted and, uh, inventory out there. There's you know, off-book off and on-book buying. It's, it's been a very hard space to judge, um, but this seemed like a deliberate decision by them to get back in control with regards to the price at which they could sell their own production, but they needed to kind of clear the table first. What was your take on that? Yeah, I agree with you. And and there was two, maybe even three points where uh, they talked through their mitigation measures and they finished the statement with, but that will lead to further destocking. So clearly their strategy is in, they don't really mind how it happens, but they're playing a let's call it a one or maybe a two or a three year game here where they want to see destocking out of this industry, no matter how it happens or where it comes from. Yeah. So, and just for people in here, because again, we're getting all sorts of people watching the show now, you know, perhaps people have not been in the uranium space for, uh, for the last two, three, four years. Um, the, the price at which, uh, the spot price at the moment is, well, hitting the heights of 34, was it 23 two months ago. Um, but if you're a producer with your pounds in the ground, you want to sell them for the most amount possible. If you can go into the market, buy it somewhere between 23 and, and, and 34 and sell against contracts, which you may have at much higher prices because the contracts were agreed you know, a while ago, you know, whether it be you know, five, six, seven years ago or longer, as we've heard for some companies. Um, you're going to choose to do that rather than eat into which is valuable inventory of your own. So that, that's the kind of the, 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 the thinking, I think, that um, Kamiko are going through there. Um, the couple of other phrases, which so we talked about this last week, which is um, and it kind of relevant to what we just talked about, which is Kamiko said it's not about the size of your inventory, it's about the mobility. What did he mean by that? Yeah, so... This sector has always operated off relatively large amounts of inventory compared to other energy sources and certainly compared to industrial metals, for example. And that's just a feature. That's just what it is. So the point that was being made is there is volumes of inventory and that's just how it's been for decades. The relevant question is not really how much inventory is there and how does that compare to 10 years ago or 20 years ago? The relevant question is how mobile is that inventory? What is the capacity of people to uh, use their discretion to sell that inventory into, for example, the spot market simply because they want to liquidate it or they like the price that they're getting or they're, they're turning a trade, for example. So that's the concept of mobility. And uh, the, the, what we discussed at length, I think it was last week's show, is a comment that Grant Isaac made, which is uh, the mobility of inventory is inversely proportionate to price. In other words, as price goes up, there's less material around. 
because in this sector, people sell, generally speaking, um, most of the inventory that's sold is sold not really to make immediate returns or because it's traders operating on principal positions and that sort of thing. It's In the past, it's been sold because the people who are holding that inventory don't really feel that they need it right at that moment and they can they can buy it back in the future. So the moment you've got a rising market, they rethink the idea of letting that out into the market because they think, well, gee, I might have to buy it back at $10 a pound more, not, not uh, too far from now. So, so that was the concept and it came through uh, in the context of him confirming that they've seen sellers retreating in the last few weeks. And they've, uh, I think Tim Gitzel said that Grant had been neck deep in the spot market. So clearly they've been quite active and that, that had been the case. Whereas last year in 2019, uh, in as many words, they said, well, look, you know, we were almost the only demand in the spot market in 2019 and most of the material coming at us wasn't inventory mobile inventory, but rather these producers who were selling uncommitted production. A couple of points um, there is, what do you think is going to happen to traders? How are they going to be affected in this environment? Uh, so we're already seeing that they're being negatively affected by two things. And for viewers, the main bread and butter that traders have been doing over the last several years has been the carry trade. And that's been a function of there being too much material. It's been an oversupplied market. And they've played a, you know, what's been quite an effective role in this uh, market to take loose pounds off the spot market, finance them, uh, sell them forward for delivery in say three years time where the utility locks in a price now, which is calculated as whatever the trader can pick up those pounds for today in the spot market plus their cost of financing, plus their cost of storage, plus whatever margin they feel that they need to make it worthwhile. So that's been good money for the traders. And as long as they've got strong counterparties and they've got customers who are good for it in three years time, they're not wearing any real risk there. And they're just gluing pieces together and making a nice little margin on the turn. Now what's happened very recently is First of all, they've lost a lot of access to those financing facilities. So it's much harder to finance competitively those um, carry trades. And that's been a function of the sort of pandemic induced financial crisis um, at, at a broader level. But also what's happened is the material just isn't available in the spot market. So they can't go to a utility and say, hey, do you want you know 300,000 pounds in two years time? Because they can't get 300,000 pounds this week without seriously moving the market. So that's where the traders are, are losing out. And um, you referred to the interview that was given by Mr. Permatov from Kazadamprom. And he made some very interesting comments in that, in that traders are gonna have to reinvent themselves. They no longer have this little gravy train of the, uh, of the carry trade as the market tightens up. And those comments were directly endorsed by Cameco on this call. So they're obviously thinking in the same way. Well, let's, let's get on to, let's get on to that, Mr. Permatov. Okay, so he in part talked about the way that different mines were impacted in different ways, which therefore would in fact 
impact different partners in different ways because it's the you know they do partner up you know Camaco being one of them so it's a question of what that relationship is and what what percentage of that JV um, it, how it's apportioned so what what's your what's your take on on that call quite frankly because he you know he again seemed quite conservative and uh, considered in the in his approach to this too. Yeah, so I'm not sure where he was going in terms of if there was any agenda in the way that he was answering that question. I think it was just a well-posed question uh, that he was putting out there. And um, so Mr. Permatov explained that in situ recovery mines, when you slow them down, basically what you do is you continue pumping the uh, pregnant acid back out of the ISR um, project. And so initially you can stop new development at these mines and continue to get your recoveries. But what they can't do in Kazakhstan at the moment is they can't do what's called wellhead development. And with these mines, you need to constantly be putting in your injection wells and building up your extraction wells so that once you finish this little pen, you can move to that one, then you can move to that one, then you can move to that one. That's what they can't do. And he was making the point that the better quality assets there that are bigger, that have got their um, well uh, configuration much larger, they've got a longer runway that they can survive at before they run out of permeability and they run out of extraction and therefore they run out of product. And, but to your point, he made the point that it does affect their partners in very distinct and different ways. And the fact that everyone's down, there will be a ranking of impacts. But again, if those mines in Kazakhstan, if the wellhead development is suspended beyond the initial three months, it will start leveling everybody out. Because even those who've got access to the best quality joint ventures will lose their production and a large proportion of their production as well. Okay. Um, yeah. No, I, I, I think so. You've got you've got two of the largest producers in the world, also saying we are not. Sorry, we are going to be able to deliver against our twenty twenty contracts. No one's going to miss out, and they are what forty percent of the market. Yep, between them. Yep. Okay, so what happens to the other sixty percent? I mean, who, who are the who are the kind of main players there? You talked previously about vertically integrated um, players. Um, how does that 60% break down? Yeah, so a large proportion is uh, vertically integrated because you've got a Rano. Whilst, and all of these groups, they do their own market activities and they've got trading divisions and nuclear fuel divisions and so forth. But essentially, a Rano is vertically integrated with EDF. Uh, essentially, CGN is vertically integrated, although they are quite active traders. Uh, you've got um, Uranium One and Atom Red Mount Zolita, which is vertically integrated with Rosatom. Again, they do have trading activities and, and sales activities. It's so, And of course, CNNC, who own the Rossin Uranium Mine in Namibia, are vertically integrated. So a significant proportion uh, of that balance is in that category. And then you've got BHP from Olympic Dam. Um, and that's a byproduct. Uh, there are some other byproduct production around the world. 
uh, and then I think you're uh, you're pretty much out of the top ten. Okay, I just again in terms I, of uh, producing mines around the world. Yeah, so it's 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 interesting times in terms of supply, but it, it but th those those groups saying we will continue supply in 2020 um, utilities, you know that they work with will be supplied. No no issues there. Are we still betting on Q4 this year before there's a, a, a meaningful move in, in price uh, or activity to allow junior uranium uh, miners to you know, contemplate being financed or attracting finance? I, I think so. And that came through from um, both the call and the interview during the week. Um, the, the first principle is junior miners can only get financed off long-term contracts. Uh, the spot price is fantastic for equity investors. And, you know, then for most of our audience, that's probably what they're most interested in. But it's term contracts that get projects financed. And uh, in a couple of occasions during the Cameco call, they emphasised what we talked about over the last couple of weeks, which is the utilities, they're not immune from their own challenges to do with COVID-19. And they didn't sense, Cameco hasn't sensed any uh, real appetite amongst the utilities to uh, obtain new term contracts at the moment. They need to resolve some of their own issues and steady their own ships before they start doing that. Um, there was some commentary in some of the market uh, commentators, uh, the, the information services during the week that backed all of that up. It's, our own observations, it's your conversations with traders and others. So we know that the utilities are not uh, in a rush to contract because they've got bigger fish to fry right now. And uh, that suits Cameco as well. They're quite happy to allow this market to tense up a little bit more before they need to start uh, committing themselves on a contract basis. Okay. So that all augurs quite well, I think, for Q4. And what we look like we might well see is that when that contracting does materialize it's going to be materializing off a much better spot price base than if they were in a capacity if they had the capacity to deal with it right now so that's potentially out there as a real big plus for equities investors in this space and and the final comment i'd make there is they did confirm that they haven't seen any new RFPs, requests for proposals, which is the initial stage in a term contract. They haven't seen any new RFPs in the market since COVID-19 started. I love that. Buy now while you can before the market gets too hot. Good selling, CEO. <laughs> As you should. That's your job. Um, so just a, a couple more questions, actually. Just so, because there's a little bit of a little ripple in the market. We're kind of getting feedback, but about Japanese utilities selling into the market. So I know we've spoken in the past about perfumed E308, and um, the last five or so years, it's about we're talking about five million pounds or so. So it's, it's not a lot. Do you, is that still happening? I'm not. A, I'm not aware of it, and. Uh, it didn't come up on the call today, but in the last few calls, Cameco have emphasised that they've probed into Japan. They thought that that would be a potentially quite a useful source of material that they could buy in the market after they closed down MacArthur River. And they've been at pains to point out that it hasn't been forthcoming, um, or at least the utilities aren't willing to sell to them. 
but I think it's probably that it just hasn't been forthcoming. Um, there was a little bit of a kerfuffle about this towards the end of last year. Uh, there was a, there's like a survey done where um, one of the banks phones up the different uh, Japanese utilities and asks them if they're planning on selling anything in the market. And my personal take on it is they got the intern that day at JPOW. Uh, and and uh, that person said yeah and then that made itself into a bloomberg article and created this this Excellent. big news event that just wasn't wasn't a thing it's old news like the, the implication was that they were about to flood the market with right. all of the material that they don't need but you know the reality is still the same for japan if you take the perfumed fuel bundles and put them to one side because they're a special case japan still needs that material they don't need it this year and they don't need it next year, but they will need that material and it doesn't make any sense to them to sell it now and then buy it back at much higher um, prices once they've got their reactor fleet up and running. And the RB government is committed still to 20 to 22% of Japan's nuclear power, uh, Japan's energy coming from nuclear power. Uh, so they don't want to have contrary messages coming out there that uh, yeah we're really committed we're absolutely going to make this happen but in the meantime we're flogging all of our uranium at the bottom of the market interesting it's an interesting time for uranium at the moment i mean it's been delight talking to you every week and learning stuff we've got a chinese uranium utility joining us on the show which i'm excited about so we're going to learn about the uh, chinese uranium space um as well coming up so we're looking forward to that i'd love to talk to you about that because i know you're uh, you know a thing or two i like talking as well <laughs> and you like talking so those two things beautiful well, well Brandon, i i mean i think what a, another another powerful week i hope next week's got some uh, exciting news for the market we'll see if what the price continues to do albeit slowly um and maybe how people react to you know what's gone on this week um it's, it's I, I guess the, the, my big takeaway of the last two weeks has been the fact that this this desperation for the nuclear fuel working group to an expectation for it to come out with something substantive has to some degree happened you know i think generally very positive move um I wonder if there's going to be any more news this year before the election as to what they're going to do, um, or indeed if the stakeholders are, are going to be invited into uh, a, a process or start a process. Time will tell, I guess. Yeah, I think it's the, I think it's the latter. It's how it's been done so far um, since since the petition was launched, really. And I sense the implication of that in the, some of the comments on today's call as well. There was a suggestion that once the detail comes out, they'll sit down and they'll talk to them about it. So I, I think that very quickly, uh, the 232 Nuclear Fuel Working Group, um, that'll happily sit in the sort of in the back seat until there's real tangible news that we can work off. Okay. Brandon, time for you to go and have some red wine. I'm, I'm getting mine lined yeah, up. Yeah, it's probably too late for that. They've, well, trying to trying to catch the beginning of a Canadian day when you're in Perth. That's hard work. Oh, terrible. What are you going for today? What, 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 what's the drink of choice? Uh, I think I, I've just got time for a whiskey before I turn it in. Oh, mate. I'm so, so sorry. I'm so sorry. 
No, no. Well, you haven't seen my whiskey collection. You don't need to be. True, <laughs> true. I have drunk whiskey with you. You do choose a. Oh a yeah, good that's one. right. Yes. So. Uh, so I, in fact, I've got some of the Lagavulin sixteen-year-old, which I think is what we had that night. Mm-hmm. So I think, for old times' sake, I'll go and find myself a nip of that. You enjoy it. I'll speak to you soon. <laughs>